given the fact that the human heart is designed for God, and given the likelihood that the mass of humanity will not yet give heed to God, still the human heart will not go on being satisfied with a tiny world of the self. It will have to have a better substitute than therapy. It must have a better substitute. Since we were not made for the tiny world of the self, what should Christian preaching actually do? That's the question John Piper answers in this first episode of Light and Truth as we begin a four-part series titled God-Centered Preaching. This series was originally preached in February 1999 to a group of pastors in Kansas City, Missouri. Father, I want to ask and plead for your help so that what I do here will not be done in my own strength, nor that the hearing would be done in the strength of the hearers, but that you would come and that you would give me an anointing for this work that is powerful and protecting, guard me from error and from pride and from imbalance and anything that is unbiblical or unhelpful. And grant, Lord Jesus, that Satan would be frustrated in his designs to distort or deflect the truth. And I pray that hearts would be opened the way you opened Lydia's heart to give heed to the truth and that people would be able to look back on this time as an epoch-making time in their lives, so that here we saw you, and here we met you, and here we discovered things about you that made all the difference. So draw near and help me and us in this regard, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a real tentative theory about the relationship between the 20th century and the 21st century, and it's very tentative. I'm not claiming any kind of authority for this idea, but here it is. I see the 20th century, at least in the West, and at least in its latter half, as being the century of the self, or the century of the therapeutic, or the century of psychology, however you want to articulate it in those categories. 1966, Philip Reef wrote a book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And if it was so 30 years ago, it's 10 times so today. And my theory is that the 21st century, this triumph is going to give way to the triumph of astronomy or physics. Isn't that a crazy idea? But what's behind it, whether it's true or not, is this. The world of the therapeutic, the world of secular psychology, the world of the self is small. Tragically small. The human soul 
was not designed to dwell upon the self and its various states and esteems and values. It was designed not to think primarily about itself and how to fix the self and how to help the self be more adjusted and like itself better. The self was not designed for that. The self was designed to dwell upon God and the majesty of God and the glory of God. And therefore, it is an infinite shrinking of the world of the self to preoccupy itself with itself, which is what it has done now for these five or six or seven decades mainly. And it has been a tragic shrinking of the world. It has resulted in manifold maladies in the world. Let me read you from this month's First Things, which I'm sure many of you read, from this article called Faith and Therapy, the last paragraphs which so gripped me when I read this a few days ago to illustrate this. The 20th century has seen many attacks on Christianity, but the frontal attacks of militant atheists, Marxists, Nazis, have not resulted in as much lost ground for Christians as the more insidious attack of the therapeutic culture. The sense of guilt, the sense of sin, the sense of the sacred, the sense of that there is another order of authority by which we are judged, these have not disappeared entirely from Christian culture, but they have been eroded. If this is difficult to see, it is because of the fog that the culture of therapy emits. The empathic fog which surrounds us and confuses us and prevents us from seeing life clearly. We wander around in this fog thinking our enemy is our friend because it so exquisitely is concerned with our health. The only thing powerful enough to cut through this fog is the light of revelation. Revelation reminds us that physical and emotional health is not the alpha and omega of existence. The Gospels tell us that if our hand offends us, we should cut it off. It being better to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell. Likewise, it may be better to enter the kingdom of heaven with a repressed psyche than to enter the other place brimming with self-assertiveness. <laughs> there is no ultimate consolation. Now, this, this almost brought me to tears and... and hearing that you've been out among the suffering church and, and some of you know Sudan and you've been there and you go to some of these places where the church is under the kinds of torments that none of us can scarcely conceive brought this sentence to life. There is no ultimate consolation to be found in the theories propounded by psychologists. Psychology has very little to say to the majority of the suffering people in the world. And absolutely nothing to say to the fact that all of us must die one day. 
the therapeutic culture's well-adjusted person, for all his serene sense of self, has one overwhelming problem. He is blinded to the beatific vision, which I take to mean if you live within this world of the self, the therapeutic world, the world where you're always thinking about how to get the states of the self remedied, you are missing what you were made for, and that is God. The seeing of God in his glory and his majesty. Now, what in the world did you mean when you said this is going to give way to the triumph of astronomy or physics? And what I mean is, I do not know if a great revival is coming in the West. I am not a prophet. I do not have near the confidence that some people do to the effect that we are going to have a massive awakening to the glory and reality and majesty of God and his son in the way of his salvation. I don't know if that's going to happen. I do know from the Bible that it's not going to happen to everybody and that as lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold and they will hand over many to destruction and to persecution and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. I know that's going to happen, but given the fact that the human heart is designed for God and given the likelihood that the mass of humanity will not yet give heed to God, still the human heart will not go on being satisfied with a tiny world of the self. It will have to have a better substitute than therapy. It must have a better substitute. And the substitute is going to be, perhaps, articles like this from Newsweek magazine, where you read about what the Hubble telescope is sending back. <gasps> and it just absolutely takes your breath away when you read things like well, we thought there were maybe a million other galaxies. Galaxies, not stars. And now the radio waves are coming back from galaxies perhaps as far away as 12 billion light years and that there may be as many as 50 million other galaxies. Or is it billion? No, it says billion. It says billion. 50 billion other galaxies? That's what we are made for. Because according, you tell me now, help me preach this. According to Psalm 19, verse 1, this article and the Hubble telescope and those 50 billion galaxies are meant to declare what? The glory of God. It should not trouble you in the least that there is probably one teeny weeny little speck called Earth in this universe where there is humanity. I do believe that. One teeny weeny little speck where there is human beings designed to relate to the Creator. And everything else is flannel graph. To teach childlike people 
This is what he's like. That's not an excessive expenditure on God's part. The only people who stumble over this and think, this is all wasted on a little teeny weeny human reality. They're not getting it. It's not about us. Get it? It's not about us. It's about the maker. And so that this little teeny weeny speck of human being in his image would wake up out of the world of the therapeutic into the magnificent reality that God is. That's the point of the Hubble telescope. Or maybe you open your newspaper. Oh, I love these sections in the newspaper because there's no section on God in my newspaper. So the next best thing is the section on science and not psychology, but astronomy. And you read about this this star that's called Eta Carinae. Raise your hand if you ever heard of Eta Carinae. Me neither. One person. <laughs> Eta Carinae is the brightest or the biggest object in the sky that is visible to the human eye. And it's a star in our galaxy. And it is probably the biggest star in our galaxy. And is, now get these numbers, four or five million times brighter than our sun. If it were as close as the nearest star besides our sun, we'd be able to read by light. And that's 12 million light years away, not 93 million miles away like our sun. Now, when you read about these things, you can see why people worship. I tell you, if I didn't have a Bible, I would worship at the Karenai. I would. Now, let me relate this to preaching. And let me do it through Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein died at the middle of this century, 1955. And he had a few things to say about the church and about preaching. Did you know that? Let me read you a paragraph written about him by a uh, scientific specialist in general rel relativity theory. He said, I do see the design of the universe as an essentially religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. And this is the sentence that scared me. Einstein must have looked at what the preachers said, what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they just were not talking about the real thing. I tell you, when I read that as a preacher, my whole passion for what my life exists for was doubled in its intensity.
Oh God, if you would give me life, if you would give me breath, if you would keep my mind working a little bit longer, I will bend every effort to try to spread a passion for your supremacy in preaching for the joy of all peoples everywhere you'll let me. Because I don't want scientists to look at the preaching in your churches and say, they're blaspheming. I know what glory is. I've got a telescope. They don't have a clue with their daily pep talks about how to get their little psyches fixed and how to get their little marriages working better and how to get themselves fixed with their kids and how to get along better at work and how to, how to, how to, how to, how to. And you sit there wondering, is this supposed to be about God? There are plenty of books. How to get marriages working and how to get kids working and how to get your psyche working. And how to feel good about yourself. But there aren't many preachers and many pulpits where the one thing needful, the thing for which the soul is created, the thing for which we're dying in our small, little, insignificant lives. Where is anybody telling the people about a great, glorious, majestic God? Something on the par of Etta Karenai. Well, there are not many around. And my goal here is to help you get a vision for devoting yourself to doing that. You see, scientists know things. They know these kinds of facts. They know about the numbers of stars, you know, 100,000 light years across our little galaxy called the Milky Way with how many millions and millions of stars in those galaxies, and they know that our little teeny star called the sun, which burns at about 6,000 degrees centigrade on the cooler surface, is sailing through the universe at about 150 miles a second and will, if God tarries, finish its first circuit around the Milky Way in 200 million years. They know these things. And then they come to church. And maybe they hear this text. Isaiah 40. Isaiah got it. Isaiah got it. Gary, teach Isaiah. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. I'm so glad he said that. You can be an astronomer, be a Christian. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Jim, Mary, Martha, Etta Karinai. Every one of them. Billions upon billions upon billions do his bidding. By name, he knows them. And I don't think he uses numbers.
by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why is one not missing? Because God said, stay there. Stay there until I'm done. Now, Einstein knew these things, and Isaiah knew these things. We have a Bible, and we have telescopes, and we should know these things. And it is frightening to know that there are people who come to our churches, thoughtful people, who say, if what I have seen in the night sky without a telescope and the feelings I have felt of awe and reverence and wonder before the sheer existence of reality is what it is, This church is blaspheming. This is Light and Truth, God-centered preaching to help you see Christ clearly and treasure Him truly. I'm your host, Dan Kruver. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, John Piper will preach on preaching and the supremacy of God, the second sermon in our four-part series titled God-Centered Preaching. I hope you'll join us. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.